0: Now, just before we begin, this lesson's a little bit more complicated than usual, a little bit more difficult, but please persevere with it. I've produced a full set of notes, and you can find those either with the CD or by clicking the link and going through to the blog page, uh, the blog website, where you'll see those notes, and you'll be able to read a fuller version, a transcript of what I'm going to say in this podcast. So stick with it, do your best to follow along and if there's any difficulties, don't be afraid to get in touch. Ok, let's go, let's do the Catechism class. Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. In this podcast, we're looking at Lord's Day 15, question 37 in the Heidelberg Catechism. And we're going to ask a question, did God die at the cross? Who exactly did die at Calvary? We've been looking already at Lord's Day 15, question 37. The question it asks, what do you understand by the word suffered? And the answer is that all the time that he lived on earth, But especially at the end of his life, he bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. In order that by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, Christ might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation. And obtain for us the grace of God, righteousness and eternal life. Now that's an important doctrinal statement. And that's why we've been spending so much time on it. That statement forces us to explore difficult issues and theological positions that challenge our thinking and that perhaps make us question some of the utterances that we hear from our evangelical pulpits. So far, we've looked at the extent of the atonement, questioning what Zacharias Arsinus meant when he wrote he bore the wrath of God against the sins of the whole human race. Then in our last Catechism lesson, we examined the duration of Christ's suffering. For our instructor tells us that Christ suffered all the time that he lived on earth. But now, we have to look at another important issue that arises from this question. An issue that's addressed by the author of the Catechism himself in his commentary on the Catechism. So in this podcast, we're going to ask, when Christ suffered... Did he suffer in both natures? In other words, as opposed to being more stark, when Jesus died at the cross, did God die? I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Now why would we want to torture our feeble human minds with a divine perplexity like this? Well, because in church history there have been terrible heresies concerning the death of God on the cross. In his classic and very important book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott writes about two serious Christological errors that occurred in history because of false views on this issue. The first of those was Patropassianism. Now we have already learnt about this error in our previous bonus episode on Christological Errors. The word Patropassionism literally means the suffering or the death of the Father. It was a serious error held by the modal monarchians of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Those modalists who were similar to modern day oneness Pentecostals. They believed and taught that at Bethlehem, God the Father became God the Son, God acting in another temporal mode. Praxeas, the modalist refuted by Tertullian, seemed to teach that the Father himself had come down into the Virgin Mary, was himself born of her, himself suffered, and was himself Jesus Christ. So to refute this, Tertullian wrote, Let us be content with saying that Christ died, the Son of the Father, and let this suffice, because the Scriptures have told us so much. The second heresy is known as Theopassianism, the belief that God himself died at Calvary. It's a similar deviation to Patriopassionism, but it arose in the 6th century, and these heretics rejected the orthodox view that Jesus was one person with two natures, truly God and truly man. Instead, they taught that Christ had only one mixed or composite nature. That is, that the human and divine were merged into one nature. If you want a technical term, they are monophysites. Now, that composite nature was essentially divine. So they emphasised the suffering of God the Father on the cross. So why are we looking at this? Well, the point is that a misunderstanding of this doctrine can lead to serious Christological errors and a failure to truly understand what was actually happening at the cross. Especially in those who claim to be pastors or teachers in the church, this can lead to spiritual dangers for those who hear them. So John Stott writes, an overemphasis on the sufferings of God and the cross may mislead us either into confusing the persons of the Trinity and denying the eternal distinctiveness of the Son like the modalists, or into confusing the two natures like the monophysites. We'll just pause for a moment and let you look over the notes and read them and take that in. let's return to the substantive issue. Let's ask again who died on the cross. Did God die at Calvary? In a previous lesson we learned that when Christ was in this world from Bethlehem to Calvary he was both perfect man and perfect God simultaneously. Let's quickly recap that. We find out that Christ did not cease being God when he entered into the virgin womb and became man. And we learnt that from Mary he took his human nature so that he was the seed of the woman and without the inherited sin of Adam that we all passed down to our children and we've even seen a little of the process of virginal conception the truly miraculous event through which the Holy Spirit brought about Mary's pregnancy. Jesus then, we say again, is fully God and fully man two natures in one person. And we learnt that we call this the hypostatic union. Now when we think of Christ suffering from Bethlehem to Calvary, we are confronted with a problem. We know that Christ suffered as a man. He suffered just as we have to suffer and just as we do suffer. We learnt that he suffered in his humiliation. He suffered in sharing our human infirmities, want and poverty the mockery and scorn of mankind, the temptation of the devil. He suffered the cruel death on the cross and he suffered the wrath of God against our sins. It is because he suffered in our human flesh that he can sympathize with us when we suffer also. So Hebrews 4 and 15 For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, Bob was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. But we've also learned that his two natures are inseparably united in Christ's person. Does that mean that because Jesus was truly God, that God suffered and died for us? Now there's an old hymn written by Charles Wesley, that is sung very often in many churches. It goes on, Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood. And it contains a line that asks a question that is very pertinent to this matter. It goes, Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God should die for me? Jesus is fully God. But can we then conclude from that that God died on the cross? There's one or two texts that some people think might suggest this. For example 1st Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8 which says, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. One commentator sought to argue that this verse may have led some astray, thinking that the phrase, crucify the Lord of glory, was a reference to the God of glory, the Father. Now, I can't see that at all. The phrase only occurs twice in Scripture. In this text and again in James, where the context clearly points to Jesus as the Lord of glory. James 2 verse 1 to 3. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Or as the Amplified puts it, my fellow believers, do not practice your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of partiality. Clearly, that phrase is refers to Christ. The real problem comes in Acts chapter twenty and verse twenty eight, where Paul's addressing the Ephesian elders, and he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the Church of God, which He hath purchased with His own blood. The Church of God, which He purchased with his own blood. And the impression is given there that God has purchased the church with his own blood, that God died. A phrase that on the face of it would seem to be a proof text for someone who wanted to believe that God the Father had died in Christ at Calvary. The English words his own there translate a single Greek word, the word idios, It's a noun in the genitive, we might say, in the possessive case in English. So it could well be rendered with the blood of his own. So many English translations translate the verse like this. For example, from the very excellent New English translation, the so-called Net Bible. Watch out for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. The translators explain, or with his own blood, Greek, with the blood of his own. So the genitive construction could be taken in two ways. As an attributive genitive, a second attributive person, a second attributive position, meaning his own blood, or a possessive genitive, with the blood of his own. So in this case, the referent is the Son. It has been specified in the translation for clarity. The translators say that this is only one of two explicit statements in the books of Luke and Acts highlighting the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. The other is in Luke 22, 19. Then he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. So who died on the cross that terrible day? Was it God the Father, since the human and divine natures in Christ are indivisible? Well, the answer to this strange conundrum is a resounding no. Let's look at just one more of those difficult texts. It's in Colossians 2 and verse 9. It says, For in him, that's Christ, In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Again, the Amplified clarifies this for us a little bit. It says, For in him all the fullness of deity, the Godhead, dwells in bodily form, completely expressing the divine essence of God. In other words, when Paul was reading to the Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 9, he was saying that everything that God is, Christ was. Now, what do we know about the divine essence, the nature of God? We often speak about his attributes, what we can say about him that truly expresses his nature. We can't compare God to one of us. We can't even correctly or adequately describe him. In Isaiah 40 and 25, it says, To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? But what we do know about him is what he has chosen to reveal to us in his word. So we know that God is eternal. We know that he never changes. We know that he is all-powerful. We know that he is all-knowing. We know that he is holy and just and merciful. And we know that he is a loving God. He is a sovereign God. Now all of those divine attributes were present in Jesus. So God is impassible and immutable. Now what does that mean? Well, God's impassibility means that he is never swayed by feelings as we are, and therefore he cannot suffer. His immutability means that there is no change in the substantive nature of the character of God at any time. He never changes, and he is infinite The Westminster Confession of Faith describes the being of God for us. It says there is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now that long list of scripture references in the Confession that backs that statement up fills the alphabet from A to Z. Here's just two of those verses that prove his impassivity and his immutability. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. James 1 and 17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness neither shadow of turning. Now, death is a change in being. God is impassable and immutable. And it stands to reason that God cannot die because he cannot change. The second thing is that God is omnipotent, and that means he is all-powerful. It is because of God's mighty power that this universe even continues to exist. He sustains it by his power. When Paul was preaching at Mars Hill in Athens, he told the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. If God had died at Calvary, if God the Father had ceased to exist for just one second, the universe would collapse. It would implode upon itself. It would cease to exist, for nothing can exist apart from the sustaining power of God. If God dies, everything would die with him. So it's obvious because we've already learned that God is impassible and immutable and omnipotent and according to the Westminster Confession he is invisible without body parts or passions that when Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders and telling them that they were to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood he's not talking about the death of God the Father He's talking about the death of God the Son. R.C. Sproul says we should shrink in horror from the idea that God actually died on the cross. The atonement was made by the human nature of Christ. Somehow people tend to think that this lessens the dignity or value of the substitutionary act. As if we were somehow implicitly denying the deity of Christ. God forbid. It's the God-man who dies. But death is something that is experienced only by the human nature, because the divine nature isn't capable of experiencing death. If you want a reference for Sproul's quote, then you'll find it in your study guide. At the cross, Jesus died. God in the person of his only begotten Son. For to quote Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18-20, to 20, All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, And hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God the Father remained immutable, unchanging, infinite, and in his omnipotence continued to sustain this universe, even as Christ, God the Son, died on the cross. John Stott In his work, The Cross of Christ, page 184-189, to deals with this. He thinks, and I quote him, that it is wise to stay with what the authors wrote. Faithfully echoed by the Apostles' Creed, namely that he who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and was buried, was not God the Father, but was Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He concludes that only God in Christ, God the Father's own and only Son, could take our place. The love, holiness and will of the Father are identical with the love, holiness and will of the Son. Now, I know this has been a difficult lesson, but it's a very important one. And I promise you that in our next lesson, we shall deal with a far more practical aspect of the sufferings of Christ. For we'll be asking, what did the suffering and death of Christ achieve? Thanks for listening, and I look forward to talking to you again, God willing, next week.